The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. My name is Chris. It's good to see you this morning, church. One of the elders here at Gospel City Church. Uh, some of you uh, don't recognize me because I have a little bit of hair on my head that I don't usually have. Uh, growing it out, it's a trial. We'll see how it goes. Maybe it'll be gone soon. Um, anyway, uh, people have commented, so I figure I might as well acknowledge it. Um, so I may have miscommunicated with the folks doing the roster. We're going all the way through uh, verse 34 in chapter 20. So let me um, continue reading. So Jason, thanks for reading. I apologize for that miscommunication. Uh, actually, let me just pick up with uh, chapter 20, verse 25. I'll read through the rest of the passage. Um, Jesus called, called them to him and said, uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, 25. Uh, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want, uh, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning with expectant hearts. Lord, we come to hear from you, to encounter you, for you to teach us and to mold us, to shape us, to uh, make us the men and women of God that you have created us to be. So as we open up your word and as we teach from it, we pray that your spirit would speak to us. We pray that you would teach us the things that we need to know, that you would make us into what we are not yet, and that you would uh, equip us to leave this place to be effective witnesses to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> So we come to this passage and we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew. And our gospel, our study through the Gospel of Matthew has been called uh, Promises Fulfilled, a King for All Peoples. And we've really been emphasizing through this passage or through this uh, gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus is the King. That he is the King that was promised in the Old Testament that the people of Israel have been looking for, the the Jewish people have been expecting, they've been expecting a king to come and to establish his kingdom for all time. And Jesus is that king. And he is fulfilling all the promises so that we can say that every promise that God makes to us is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We come to this passage and a few chapters ago was this great 
a declaration, a confession by Peter that Jesus is the Christ. We've settled his identity. We know who he is. And Jesus has been teaching about what kind of king he will be and what he expects from those who are in his kingdom. And today in this passage that we're looking at, we see that the king, the king Jesus, is reordering our idea about greatness. What does it mean to be great? What does it mean to be great? We have ideas about what it means to be great. Uh, We strive for greatness in our lives. But what does Jesus mean when he says greatness? During the spring of 1994, I know some of you weren't even born at that point, but humor me, I was 18 years old. And it was my senior year of high school. And I was enjoying life. And one of my favorite songs that was released that year was by a band called Counting Crows. The song was called Mr. Jones. Maybe some of you younger people have heard the song on a classic rock radio station. Makes me feel old to to know that. The, The song is a commentary on fame and the lead singer's desire for fame and greatness. He sings... Uh, a confession almost when he says in the song, when everybody loves me, I will never be lonely. I won't even try to sing like Adam Duritz. I will never be lonely. I said, I'm never going to be lonely. Later in the song, he confesses, we all want to be big, big stars. Yeah, but we've got different reasons for that. And later still in the song, he says, Mr. Jones and me staring at the video. When I look at that television, I want to see me staring right back at me. We all want to be big stars, but we don't know why, and we don't know how. These lyrics in this song reveal a certain ambition by Adam Duritz. His ambition is he wants to be great. He wants to be famous. He wants to be known. He wants to be loved. He wants to be praised. And the path to this recognition for him is a lot of effort, a lot of work, a lot of lucky breaks. I think it is still a popular song, and even some of you who weren't alive in 1994 have at least heard the song or are familiar with it, because it speaks to a desire that we all have to be successful, to be praised for our efforts, to be recognized for what we've been able to accomplish. We want to make a name for ourselves. It's as though there is this desire for greatness that is within us, and we see greatness as a mountain that we must conquer. Whatever social circle we find ourselves in, it just seems that the world keeps telling us to pursue success. And so we strive. We strive hard for success and for greatness. And even if we're part of a social circle that isn't pushing us to greatness, many of us know what it's like to feel the pressure from family, particular, particularly maybe even your parents who want you to do well so that they can brag about you to their friends. You know, we seek greatness. We do because we want to be known and people that love us want to know us as being great. <clears throat> Today's passage, as I mentioned already, Jesus is reordering greatness for us. And what he's going to tell us in this passage is, is that greatness is not about achievement It's not about money. It's not about degrees or positions. It's not about any of these things. Actually, greatness is about humility, lowliness, and servitude. Now, we come to these 
these little stories that are all packaged together here from Matthew 19 all the way to the end of 20. And we might ask ourselves, how do these stories really fit together? They seem to just be mishmashed. But really, they're all pointing us to this idea of greatness. Our section begins with a group of people who are seeking Jesus. Little children. It ends with a group of people who are crying out to Jesus. People in both sides, the children or the blind men, the crowds or the disciples, don't think that they have a right to cry out to Jesus. And they're trying to rebuke them and keep them away. And then further into the stories, we have a story of a rich young man who comes to Jesus asking him for something, for eternal life. And then you have the disciples, particularly two of the disciples sending their mom to ask for a special seat in the kingdom. And sandwiched in the middle of that is Jesus teaching about what true greatness is. He tells us that to be great in the kingdom is to be a servant, to put yourself in the place of service to others. That's what it is to be great in the kingdom. Jesus does not encourage people to not be great. He doesn't tell people to not be ambitious. What he tells them is, is that if you're going to pursue greatness, there is a way to pursue it, but it's not the way that you think. At the center of all this, we find Jesus. He is the one who is going to redefine greatness in his own life and death and burial and eventually his resurrection. And the theme, the one theme that goes throughout this is, is this, is that it's through the greatness of Jesus and through his servanthood that salvation becomes a free gift offered by divine mercy to everyone completely devoid of human merit. That's what greatness is. Jesus shows us what greatness is. So let's look at this in, in kind of a different way. We're going to jump through this passage. We're going to look at the bookends, and then we're going to kind of work our way to the middle as we work through this passage. So the first thing that we need to see is that Jesus, this King Jesus, this, this one who is great, he is available to those who come to him in humble dependence. This point one, Jesus is available to those who come to him in humble dependence. We notice that in the first little story, the, uh, the children being brought to him, the disciples rebuked them, but Jesus said, let them come. And he laid his hands on them and went away. He blesses them. That's the, the picture of Jesus laying his hands on them is a common sign of, of blessing. At the end of chapter 20, verses 28 through uh, 34, when the blind men are coming, notice the, the blind men, well, actually they don't come, right? They're sitting on the roadside as Jesus comes by. They heard that he was coming because they can't see him, and they're crying out. And the crowd says what? The crowd rebukes them, tells them to be silent, but they cry out even more. They are, they are expressing a dependence upon Jesus for what they need. Both the children and the blind men are being rebuked. They're being told, you cannot come to Jesus, but Jesus rather blesses them both. He lays his hands on the, the children. He touches the blind men, and they receive their sight. Now, it's interesting, as 
these two stories set up this this whole story, this whole big section. We, we have a problem here at the beginning where the disciples are the ones who are rebuking the people bringing the children. And it seems as though the disciples should be familiar back in chapter 18, right? Where uh, some children are brought to him. Is it chapter 18? Yes. Uh, in in 18.1, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest? And Jesus, in calling to him a child, he put his hand in the midst of them and he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn him to become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is the second time the disciples are encountering children and Jesus teaching on children. So they should know, and yet they're rebuking people, saying, no, no, the, don't let the children come. But Jesus says, no, let the children come. There's still a blindness that the disciples have to who is admitted into the kingdom. And some have suggested that at the end of the section, as these blind men who are expressing a humble dependence upon Jesus to receive their sight, and Jesus giving them their sight, giving them the blessing of receiving their sight back, there is something about the blindness of the disciples being removed as they head to Jerusalem. They're on their way to Jerusalem. See, next week we get to dive into this, this portrait of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And as they go in, there is something of the disciples understanding and, and his followers gaining insight into what Jesus is doing. So these two bookends show us that Jesus receives those. The kingdom is available to those who come to him in humble dependence. Now let's work in a little bit. The, the, the meat, the, the big portion of our section this morning from uh, chapter 19, verses 16, all the way through to Matthew chapter 20, verses 28, is showing us how Jesus reorders the values of this world in his kingdom. Jesus is reordering the values of this world in his kingdom. Now, he's going to do that uh, as he teaches around two requests that are made to him. Two requests. The first request is from the rich young man. The second request is from James and John's mother. So as we look at these, um, the, the rich young man is asking, how do I gain eternal life? What do I have to do to gain eternal life? And James and John's mother is asking to give her sons a prestigious position in Jesus' kingdom. Let's look first at this rich young ruler. Jesus is going to tell us in this interaction with the rich young ruler that greatness is not achieved by accomplishment or wealth. In verses 16 through 30 of chapter 19, the rich young ruler comes and says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? It seems like a benign enough question, right? He's seeking an answer to a question. And Jesus says, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who's good. If you would have life, keep the commandments. And for the first time in the gospel, we, we're presented with this idea of eternal life. And it's, it's used kind of synonymously, interchangeably, with the idea of being a citizen in the kingdom, being a part of the kingdom of heaven, uh, being saved, being found. This, all of these things begin to uh, be used synonymously. The rich young man says to Jesus, which commandments am I to keep? And Jesus tells him, well, you shall not murder, you know, you shall not uh, 
bear false witness, you know, honor your father and your mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And I mean, I, I don't know what to think about this, but the rich young man says, well, I've, I've kept all of those. That's, that's impressive. <laughs> Way to go, man. That's awesome. Let's take it at face value. Let's assume that he has kept all of those commands. Jesus says, or he, then he asks, what do I still lack? And Jesus says, well, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And when the rich young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The rich young man comes to Jesus asking this question. Basically, it sounds like he's asking, how do I get into your kingdom? And the disciples are there. They're watching this. And their response when they see him walk away is, if this guy can't get in, who can get in? I mean, their idea is that someone like this would be a benefit in the kingdom. He's accumulated wealth. He's accumulated possessions. He's well-known. He's got status. Certainly, he would be an asset in the kingdom. Jesus could benefit from having someone like this. The disciples did not understand why Jesus would make entry so difficult on this young man. And the young man went away, right? It says in verse 22, When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, Jesus' interaction with him exposed something that was in this young man's heart. He had great possessions. He had told, Jesus had told him, hey, keep these commands. Honor your father and your mother. Don't lie. Don't kill, right? He didn't say anything to him about don't have any gods before the Lord your God. Don't create any idols, right? He didn't say that. And yet he exposed something about who the true idol of this young man's heart was. When Jesus says to go sell everything that you have and you'll have to give it away to the poor, it's not that by doing those things he would gain entry. It's the fact that he would have to follow Jesus. This young man valued his possessions and his treasure here on earth more than he valued Jesus. He didn't trust the promise of Jesus that he would have treasure in the kingdom more than he trust, trusted what he could see and experience and manipulate and, and work with in that day. You see, when Jesus is explaining this to, to the disciples, then the disciples are confused and they say, who can enter in? This is too difficult. Jesus looks at them and he says, with man this is impossible. This is verse 26. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. God makes a way for people to enter into the kingdom. And Peter here, he's a little concerned. He's like, well, this rich guy who is well-known, who would be an asset to you, he can't get into your kingdom. You've turned him away. Jesus, we've been following you. We left everything. You promised this guy great riches if he followed you. What are we going to get? And Jesus answers them, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits at the, on his glorious throne, you who followed me will sit on 12 thrones. Remember that, because I think that's why 
James and John's mom is going to make the request. She does. You're judging the 12 tribes. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands. And here's the key. For my name's sake. Will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. The disciples who followed Jesus for his namesake will receive rewards. Which kind of makes it obvious to us that Judas, who was following Jesus, obviously not for his namesake, but for his own benefit, because he would turn and betray Jesus, he would not be one to receive these rewards in the kingdom. You see, God is not mocked. He knows the motivation of our heart. Jesus looked into the life of this rich young ruler. He saw what was at his heart, what it was he treasured, what it was he wanted. And what he wanted was something other than Jesus. God looks at our hearts. He, Jesus looks at us and he knows whether we want something more than we want him. God's not going to be mocked. Do you do what you do for the sake of Christ? Or do you do it for your own personal benefit? God knows your motivation. Just like he saw the heart of the rich young man, he sees your heart. His ability to see our motivations reminds me of a story attributed to Charles Spurgeon. The story goes like this. There was a gardener who went and presented his king with the greatest carrot that he had ever grown. And the king is touched by this offer from the farmer. And he responds by giving the gardener a large plot of land so that he can, he can farm more and do more gardening. Well, there was a nobleman in this kingdom who witnessed the event and he decided that it would be advantageous for him to present the king with his finest horse. And so he takes the horse to the king, and the king merely thanks him for the horse. Oh, thank you, this is a nice horse. And the nobleman is confused. And he says to the king, or, and the king explains to him, you see, the gardener gave me the carrot but you were giving yourself the horse. God looks right at our motivations. He knows what it is we're doing and what we're seeking. Are you serving in order to get something from God or are you serving for the sake of Christ's name and his kingdom? Wealth was a stumbling block to this rich young ruler. David Platt writes that wealth continues to be a huge stumbling block to those in our day who want to enter God's kingdom. In our sin, we are naturally drawn to trust our own resources rather than the one who is all-sufficient. This truth applies to more than just rich people, though. It's impossible for any man to do anything to enter the kingdom of heaven. So the disciples ask in verse 25, then who can be saved? Jesus says, it's only possible with God, for we need him to do the impossible. When Jesus gives this instruction to the rich young man to go and sell everything that he has and to follow him, there is a bit of self-motivation in there, right? I mean, there is a self-motivation to be preserved in the kingdom, but it's not to preserve me for my sake. 
It's giving myself over to Jesus for his name's sake. I become a subject of Jesus in that sense. The thing that the rich young ruler could not grasp in that moment is that Jesus is infinitely better than anything he currently possessed. And that Jesus' reward is better than anything he can accumulate in this day and age. So Jesus is teaching in this passage that greatness is not achieved by accomplishments or wealth. The next story I want to look at is from chapter 20, verses 20 to 26. And in this story, we're told that greatness is not granted because of prestige, power, or position. Now remember, I said, remember, uh, I told you to remember that Jesus told the disciples that they will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in some sense, it makes it's understandable that when James and John's mom would come to Jesus, she says, hey, would you let my sons sit on your right and on your left? I mean, Jesus has already told them they're going to be on thrones. So it's just a small request. Can, can they have this prestigious position, Jesus? Will you put them there? It's an extraordinary request. And it reveals that the disciples don't grasp the values of the kingdom. At best, it's embryonic. His response to their quest for positions of importance hinges on a key demand when it comes to this idea of greatness in the kingdom. Look at verse 26. He says, It shall not be so among you. The previous verse, he says, You know, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord their position over those that they rule. Great ones exercise authority over them. It will not be that way among you. Yes, you're going to sit on thrones and you will judge the 12 tribes. That's what Jesus has said. But it's not that they are to rule over them and have power over them in the sense that, that they're like the rulers of their day and age. No. Their call is to be a servant. See, greatness in the kingdom is not about the prestige or the power that, that someone has. It's not about the position where you sit according to Jesus. That's not greatness. There's something still going on in the minds of the disciples and those who follow Jesus where they misunderstand what greatness is. They want greatness. They're ambitious. They're pursuing something, but they don't know how to get it. Oftentimes we find ourselves to be the same way. We want things we're ambitious. We're seeking greatness. We just don't know how to achieve it. We need Jesus to tell us how to get that. And we see clearly here that greatness is not granted because of prestige, power, or position. Jesus illustrates his reordering of greatness with this parable that's given in chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Reordering of greatness is illustrated here. When Jesus tells us that many who are first will be last and the last first. The expectations that many people have about how greatness works and, and, and all of these things, these expectations are subverted by Jesus. He tells us that things do not work the same way in the kingdom 
as they do in the kingdoms of the world. Chapter 19, verse 30, many who are first will be last and the last first. It sums up the revolutionary values of the kingdom of heaven. Once again, Jesus repeats this in chapter 20, verse 16. Many who are first will be last and the last first. It is a lesson which, in a variety of ways, the disciples must learn while Jesus is still with them. Jesus wants them to get this. It is so important. The, the parable itself is pretty easy to follow, right? There's a group of workers that they go out and they're hired and they agree to work for a certain amount of pay. And then the, the one who is the, the, uh, the owner, the master of the house, right? Uh, later he goes out, he sees more people, he recruits more workers. And a few hours later he goes out and he recruits some more. And then at the end of the day, when it's time to pay, he gives those that he had agreed to at first that they would get a denarius, he gives them what he agreed to give them. And they're upset because they, they're looking to get rewarded greater than those who came later. They're looking for something that wasn't theirs to determine. See, Jesus makes this point in verse 15 when he says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Have you ever gone to God and just complained about how kind he has been to someone else when you don't feel like he's been as kind or kinder to you? You feel like perhaps you deserve God's kindness more than someone else? That perhaps you deserve his favor more than someone else? Maybe you think you're a greater asset in the kingdom than somebody else is, and so you complain to God because he's being kind and gracious to someone else? I'm sure you've never done that. You can't quite fathom. We can't fathom God's kindness and goodness. We look on other people and we look on the contributions of others and we often compare ourselves, don't we? I've done more or they've done more. We look at somebody and we see what they have to offer and we think, oh, I can never be like that. Or we look and we see what someone else is not doing and we say, they need to get together with the program. Or we think, I'm doing so much. I am such a, such a great person. Jesus is really fortunate to have me. But Jesus, he subverts all of this when it comes to our understanding and our evaluation of ourselves. You see, ultimately, it's not about what we've accomplished. It's not about our positions. It's not about prestige. It's not about wealth. It's not about any of these things. Jesus tells us in this passage that greatness is attained by self-sacrificial servitude. This is a key point. Greatness is, is attained by self-sacrificial servitude. And he shows this to us in two different places. Chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, and chapter 20, verses 26 to 28. Jesus here reorders greatness by calling the servant and the slave the greatest. This is hard for Jesus' audience to hear. 
It's hard for us to hear today. Let's read these two passages really quickly. Chapter 20, verses 17. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way up, he said, this is the third time he's told them about this. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is telling them what he's doing. He's not telling them why he's doing it, but he's saying this is what's going to happen. It is clear to us from the rest of the gospel that the disciples do not understand what he's saying. They don't get it. Further still, he, he begins to teach on this idea of self-sacrificial servitude in chapter 26. After he says, it's not to be so among you, he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This idea of Christ being mocked and flogged and crucified is tied together with this idea of him giving his life as a ransom for many. These are hard teachings for the disciples to hear. Jesus is saying greatness is not being ordered, is not someone being able to order others around, but rather greatness is being able to be ordered by others. You see, in that day and age, greatness was often determined by how many servants you had. If you were great, you had servants and slaves and you were kind of at the top of a pyramid. But no, Jesus says here, if you're going to be great, you must become the servant. This term for servant, diakonos, which we, you might hear the word deacon in there. The, the concrete sense of servant here means to wait at tables or to care for someone. It's just a comprehensive term for service. For the first century Greek, the idea of service is undignified. The idea for a Greek person in that day is that they were born to rule, not to serve. Service would only become valuable to someone in those days when it promotes individual development or the development of a whole society or a state. If service demands renunciation, then the idea of self-sacrificial service finds little place. That was the idea of the world. Service is to be looked down on. No, you don't serve, you rule. You do whatever you can to get on top. But Jesus here is exalting service, and he relates it to love of God, and he sets forth a completely different view of service than the Gentiles and the Jews of that day put forward. You see, in that day, the worldly rulers lord over their subjects. But Jesus says in his kingdom, those who are the greatest are the ones who make themselves servants. Ultimately, Jesus points to himself as being the greatest because he is the one 
who serves others by giving his life as a ransom for many. But it's not just service. He says in verse 27, this is really hard. I mean, if you think hearing you must be a servant is hard, his next statement is even more challenging. In verse 27, he says, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. It's one thing to be a servant. It's another thing to be a slave. A servant might have some rights and might have some dignity compared to a slave. A slave, a doulof, a bond servant, is someone who has, in that day and age, no rights unto themselves. They are simply property. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, if you want to be first, you must become a slave. And notice he's speaking to the disciples, to the twelve. If any of you want to be the greatest in this group, you've got to become the slave of them all. That's reordering greatness, isn't it? How does that make you think about greatness just as you walk through the shopping mall this afternoon when you go to get your meal? What does it make you think about the person who is serving your table with food? Oftentimes we may look down on somebody like that who has such a menial service job. But in the kingdom, someone who's serving tables is elevated to greatness. How do you feel about greatness? Being a slave is the proper term for the relation of a ruler and his subjects. It expresses both the power demanded on one side and the subjugation and bondage experienced on the other. Jesus tells us that the person who wants, who wants to be preeminent in the kingdom is to take the path of lowliness and humility. It is the antithesis of pride. Our pride tells us to be great and to achieve more. And Jesus says, no, humble yourself and become a servant. Now, I, I've lost track of time here, so I apologize. I don't know how long I've been speaking. But I need to say this. This is, this is something that just is, is deep inside me. That uh, someone who was a supervisor and kind of mentor to me for a while really harped on and it just sticks with me. If greatness in the kingdom is about slavery and servanthood, we have got to embrace that and we have got to reject ideas that the world teaches us about greatness. Now, I know at GCC we use terms like ministry leaders and the elders have heard me say this before, so this is not going to be any surprise to them. Well, I think we've got to get rid of the term leader and we've got to use the word deacon. Our church is set up for that. We need to introduce that and change it because there's this idea that we pursue leadership and, and, and leadership brings all this worldly baggage with it. And I think that pursuing leadership is actually poison to the Christian life. We've got to be preserving, per, uh, pursuing servanthood and slavery. 
Now, I don't mean we go sell ourselves into slavery somewhere, but, but we have got to humble ourselves. Instead of seeking to build ourselves up and make much of ourselves, we need to spend time making much of other people. We need to promote and encourage those who might be looked on in this world as being puny and not having much to offer. Not trying to promote ourselves. In verse 28, Jesus says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The King himself says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And how did the king come to serve? To give his life as a ransom for many. The supreme example of servitude was Jesus willingly going to the cross. This title, Son of Man, carries the aura of supreme authority that we read about in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where we're told that one like the Son of Man would come. The authority is expressed in terms of the service which all peoples, nations, and languages will offer him. Yet, his destiny is, uh, I'm sorry, he whose destiny it is to be served will be found, in fact, to take the place of the servant. The one, the Son of Man who would come, who it seems would be the one who would receive all service, actually makes himself the servant. The death of the Son of Man is therefore portrayed here as the supreme example of unselfish service. He will give himself for others. His specific role as a ransom in place of many is unique. None of us can do that. Yet what we are to imitate is his self-giving spirit which inspires it. You see, when we reorder greatness, we recognize that Jesus is the greatest. He has become the servant that no one else can become because that in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, he takes on the sin of the world, makes payment for the sin, and those who come to him in humble dependence, he welcomes them into his kingdom. No one can do what Jesus has done. The rich young ruler and the disciples thought they could gain a place in Jesus' kingdom by works, by wealth, by prestige, by position. But what this passage teaches us is that in order to receive what they're looking for, we have to come to Jesus like children or like the blind men, humbly dependent upon his mercy not seeking to make much of ourselves or to make ourselves great in his kingdom in the sense that we lord it over others, but that we come in humble service, seeking to serve others and to make much of others, not making much of ourselves. Entrance to the kingdom is only granted through Christ by the Father when we submit to him as king and allow his finished work to serve us. Jesus doesn't need us. But he loves us. And he gave his life for us as a ransom. He came to serve us. 
You're not saved because you have something to offer Jesus. You're saved because he lovingly served you on the cross. And when you place your faith and trust in him, that gift is given to us. And now as subjects of the king, we are to imitate the king. We are to make much of others by humbling ourselves to service of others. Making much of others. Not getting our way, but looking how we can help others. Harry Truman, one of the former presidents of the United States, I forget which number he was. I know he was a president. My U.S. history isn't all that great. Sometime in the 1900s, 20th century. He has this quote. He says, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. It's amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. I would change it just a little bit. It's amazing what you can accomplish when you care that only Jesus gets the credit. When you so order and structure your life around the king who has defined greatness as becoming a slave or becoming a servant, it's amazing what you can accomplish. Not because you're trying to pursue greatness on your own, but in order to pursue the service of others, the kingdom is exalted, and most of all, Jesus is exalted on high. And isn't that what we're called to do? To make much of Jesus? I was reminded this past Wednesday in a quick group that I must decrease, Christ must increase. And that's what greatness is. You want to pursue greatness? Hallelujah. Pursue greatness. Pursue greatness by becoming a slave, by becoming a servant. Not just of Christ, but make yourself a servant to others. Put others' needs above yourself. Seek how you can serve. Seek how you can build up. Not for your sake, but for Christ's sake. And your reward will be great in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent your son to serve us by being obedient to death on a cross. That on the cross he took he took our sin on himself and he bore your wrath making ransom for us that we might have eternal life that we might have a place in the kingdom thank you may you shape us and change us to be servants who exalt Christ in his name we pray amen thank you for listening to this message we invite you to learn more about gospel city church at gospelcitychurch.my